I have to tell you, I'm really glad that I'm almost done with the song leading. <laughs> Got one more to go. What I do when I start songs is uh, I just kind of feel it out and I kind of think of what feels like the right note and then I just dive in. And uh, more often than not, I'm in the ballpark of where it needs to be. Uh, but uh, every time it starts and it feels like it hasn't gone off the rails, I'm like, okay, that's good. That's good. One more to go. Uh, let me open us in prayer. Lord, please come and inhabit this time. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all hearts here be pleasing in your sight. And would you communicate with us now? Lift our hearts into things that are truly beautiful and good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been talking about, from the start uh, of this series, we've been talking about supernatural life, life that comes from above, how God calls us into life that is more than ordinary human life, even ordinary life that's trying hard and, and, and doing better. But there's something in Scripture very, very clear about real, genuine life from above. We're called into that. And what we're talking about now, last week and this week, is how the road to that uh, kind of life cannot go through what we call legalism. Last week I spent some time looking at different ways we might define legalism. Today, let's just go with the general idea. Legalism is having a law-centered approach to your faith, to your religion, whatever you want to call it. Legalism is having law occupy too high of a place, having a rule-centered. Now, obviously, when we're dealing with the Scriptures, Paul is frequently focusing on the law of the Old Testament, but we're taking that in principle to apply to any rule-centered approach to Christianity, any rule-centered approach to religion, right? And, and uh, that, that's the way we're going to loosely use it. I'm not trying to be technical here, but I think most of us, when we, when we use the term legalism, we're thinking of something that has the law occupying too high of a place in our lives. So let me start with a, a question for you. I'm going to give you an example and ask you a question. I'm going to tell you about my grandmother. Um, the one, I've got one who's, who's still alive. She's 98 years old now, but one who passed away a few years ago. That's the one I, I'm talking about. Uh, she believed some things that probably most of you in here don't believe. For example, she believed, I think she believed, that uh, a woman should never trim her hair. Now, I know we're living, we, uh, we have a, a diverse audience in here. Some of you are very familiar with that because you came from the same tradition that my grandmother came from. Others of you would think, what in the world? People believe that? It comes from a, a passage in 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, it's been interpreted by some people. I don't think it's the majority uh, who look at this passage, but it's by some people it's been interpreted to mean a woman should never trim her hair. Scissors should never touch her hair. Now, I think that's, <clears throat> I grew up believing that and probably preached it pretty harshly like I did a lot of other things. Uh, but I think that's a pretty uh, misguided uh, understanding. I, I don't, I think at the very least that's an obscure understanding of that passage, and it's uh, hard to argue the case. But I want to ask you this question about my grandmother. Just, just set aside, you know, some of you may have different opinions on that view, but on, on that passage, but, but just setting uh, aside maybe arguments about 1 Corinthians 11 and its specific meaning, do you think my grandmother was a legalist for holding that view? And maybe some others that uh, would be a little bit more conservative or, or whatever term you want to use seem more extreme. Before you answer, let me tell you a little bit more about my grandmother. 
My grandmother was a bright light for Christ. She was a woman of genuine humility and love and sacrificial service for others. She was a woman who gave herself to others. I asked her one time about her favorite songs. And I don't think there were a lot of people in my tradition who would have answered this way about favorite songs. Maybe that's why it stuck in my head for, for years. And I remember her saying, if it wasn't her favorite song, it was at least one of her favorite songs. It was, it was I'd Rather Have Jesus. Y'all know that, that old song, I'd Rather Have Jesus? That was her, that was her favorite or one of her favorite songs that she, she mentioned to me. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. Uh, one of the verses says, he's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead. Now, that, that, that's her. She was a woman of, of genuine faith who prayed and knew the Lord. Was she a legalist? Well, I want to say if she's a legalist, we need more of them. <laughs> we need more like her. Now, technically, okay, she may have had, you know, if, if we go here in, into definitions like we did last week, we may want to make a spectrum from really hard legalists to more soft legalist, and we could spend some time trying to tease that out. And maybe in some ways she would be on the spectrum. But uh, what I want to emphasize to you right now is that my grandmother had what we all need. And just being a little bit more conservative, if you want to use, like I said, conservative is a difficult term. I'm, I'm throwing that around too. Just having a view that maybe some of us would view as more extreme, having a view that God might want something from his people that other people think, no, that, that's not right, and that seems a little bit off. Uh, that doesn't make you a strong legalist. And just being a little bit more liberal, just being a little bit more open-minded, just being uh, a little bit more loose in your interpretation of the Bible, that doesn't make you a pleasing, bright light for Christ. <laughs> that doesn't turn you into a saint. Just go, well, I'm okay with doing that. This person's not okay with it, but I am okay with it. And what we've tried to get at as we've been talking about this, uh, these things lately, and last week as I, I was talking about Romans 7, where, where Paul describes the condition of somebody outside Christ who is, who is bound by sin, and his answer is not, well, become a little bit more open-minded. Right? Be a little bit more okay with people doing things in church that you used to not be okay with. His answer is, encounter the living God. And by the Spirit of God, come alive and come to know God as your father, and that changes everything for you. And so we, we need to be careful when we, when we start talking about these things. Those of us who have journeyed from maybe a real strict, what we would call a legalistic background, and, and rightly so, I think, and we've journeyed over here, we might start saying, well, because we have new understandings, because we're a little bit smarter about the Bible than we used to be, now we're so much better off. Actually, that could just be a, a little bit looser form of legalism. <laughs> We're now now we're, we're prideful, now we're superior, now we're looking at these things instead of those things that we do for God. And we think because we do these things better than other people, God is more pleased with us. Because we're not as strict with the rules now, uh, God is uh, more pleased with us. Now let me, let me qualify that I do think when you hold extreme views, it could be evidence of legalism. Or at least that you are connected to a legalistic context. Um, and I think if you have a lot of those... It could lead you to distance from God. We, we have to, I'm not just saying it doesn't matter at all what you believe. And this will, hopefully this will make some sense as we, as we talk today. As you're um, focused on these kinds of things, 
these kinds of things that really are secondary or tertiary, way down the line, away from what's primary. If you focus on these things a lot, you're probably going to be distanced from the heart of God. And so it does matter. But we've got to get the main thing in focus. We've got to get the, the, the idea in our, in our mind that what we're after is really knowing God, really being able to live life in God's presence and by His power, in fellowship with Him, by the Holy Spirit, coming to the point where we'd rather have Jesus than anything else in the world, that where we know that He's all that our hungering spirit needs. And then we might have some differences on the Bible. We might have some differences on things. We might even come to believe that some of what we used to believe is, is not that important anymore. We might still believe some of those things, but that's not really the main marker for what uh, God is looking for. It's not the main marker for, for recognizing who is law-centered and who is Christ-centered. The main marker is, do you have that life of Christ in you? And as you have that life, then you will be able to prioritize in uh, an appropriate way, hopefully. You may still, like I said, you may still believe some things that aren't exactly right. You may still believe some things that are a little bit more extreme, but you, you are not, at least we say, that you're not the bad kind of legalist if you're there because you know the Lord and you're living life with Him. This is why, by the way, um, you can be a legalist about doctrines, and uh, at least in some sense, you can be a legalist about doctrines of grace. If you've ever known a mean Calvinist uh, who, uh, well, they're telling you, you can't do anything. It's all God, and it's none you. It's, it's, just, it's just him. And you think, well, that means you're about grace, right? You're not about the law. And yet the way you hold that doctrine is more in line with the spirit of a legalist. I'm better than you because I've got this doctrine right. You don't have the doctrine right, so you're out. And that in itself is not being in touch with the heart of God. We're not after correct views on everything, fixating on those. That can lead us to look down on others and be distant from the Lord who loves us. The crucial issue in all of this is knowing God, being united to Christ by faith and by the Spirit of God. I want you to know, please, please hear me at the outset and understand this. God has an eternal plan that he is carrying out today in the church. And God never got to a point where he said, well, okay, it's too hard. I'm going to throw up my hands and forget about all this and just kind of make a deal. We'll swap some things out, and then I can take these people to heaven, and so be it, I'll get them to heaven eventually. Right? God never did that. What God had was a plan to take people, as the book of Hebrews says, and, and, and through Jesus make many sons and daughters for himself, to remake people in the image of God. To make them in the image of Christ. That is the plan God has always had. It's the plan he still has. And the law cannot get you to that. It's supernatural life from God that gets us to that. And that is what we're after. Let me see if I can put it in a way that might make this a little more practical for you. By, by quoting from John Wesley. Somebody asked John Wesley, like, what, what's he do when he's trying to preach people? What are you doing with people? He said, you ask what I would do with them? I would make them virtuous and happy. Let's stop, stop with that for a minute. I would make them virtuous and happy. This is preaching the gospel to people. Do you ever think you're preaching the gospel to people because you want to make them virtuous and happy? 
I'd make them virtuous and happy, easy in themselves and useful to others. Easy in themselves. This is what the gospel can do for people. Whither would I lead them? To heaven, to God, the judge, the lover of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. What religion do I preach? The religion of love, the law of kindness brought to light by the gospel. What is this good for? To make all who receive it enjoy God and themselves. To make them like God, lovers of all, contented in their lives and crying out at their death in calm assurance, Oh, grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives me victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a pretty good deal, isn't it? That sounds like something that, that most of us would want to be in on if we're thinking right. <laughs> That's what we want to do for people when we preach the gospel to them. But let me say to you, if you just give people a bunch of things they're supposed to do, they'll never get that. If you just get the law in the center of their lives, whatever that law is, readjusted now, maybe some different rules that you give people. If you, if you just give them that as the primary thing, they will never arrive at that kind of life. To be virtuous and happy and easy in themselves, enjoying God and enjoying themselves. What we need is the good news of Christ to be given to us and to receive that kind of life. This is why we don't want to proclaim law to people, because we have something so much better to give them. So today, I'm going to just briefly look at some passages from Galatians, see if we get a little bit more clarity around this. And I'm going to try to, I said briefly, last week one of the things I did was I, I got into Romans 8, and I think I just spent too much time there. So I'm going to just have to move, move quickly, okay? But, but let's uh, just glean some central ideas from the book of Galatians, especially we're going to start with chapter 3 and look at a few passages from chapter 4 and 5, okay? Here's, Paul's working with the, this idea of the law and, and what's its real value and meaning for people now that Christ has come. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the one who is right, he quotes an Old Testament scripture here, the one who is righteous will live by faith. And then he quotes another scripture in the next one. He's kind of contrasting two approaches here. But the law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, he quotes another passage here, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. So you have these two approaches, actually represented from two different scriptures from the Old Testament. It is the one who's really righteous in God's eyes. That's the person who will live by faith. But the law, Paul says, it's not of faith. The law puts the focus on doing. And if you're just doing, that doesn't get you to the place where faith will get you. That's what Paul is trying to say. This trusting allegiance to Jesus will get you somewhere the law cannot get you. Let me ask you then, if we see these two contrasting approaches, which is your approach to Christianity? Now be honest with yourself about this. When you're talking to your friends about your faith, if you ever do that kind of thing, talking to someone about your faith, do you start by saying, well, here's the things I do. 
Here are my practices. Here are my church's practices. Here are the ways we're trying to work things out. This is the kind of thing my, my religion is. When you're in the quiet of, of your own heart, looking inside, thinking about things, do you think, well, this is, this is what it is for me. Here are the things I do. Here are the ways I, I serve. Here are the ways I act. Here are the ways I worship. Or do you think or do you talk about the Savior who loves you? Do you talk about the character of God who's been revealed in Jesus? Do you talk about the great kindness and love of God your Father? Are you resting in Him? Are you enjoying God by leaning on Him in a trusting faith? Or are you centered on all the things you have to do or the things that you want to do that make you feel better about yourself or perhaps make you feel better than other people? These are the contrasts of the way we approach our faith. Do you have a joyful confidence in the love of Jesus? Just being selective here. Verses 23 through 26 in chapter 3. Now Paul talks about faith coming, which is a strange thing because it's not like nobody had faith before Jesus came, right? But there's a way in which Paul views the, the, the epic of history has changed. Since Christ came, there's a way in which he has revealed faith a way we can enter faith that was not largely possible before he came. So now faith has come. There's a new way of being in with God since Christ came. Faith has come. Before that, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our, our disciplinarian. Your translation may say our guardian. The old King James, I believe, says your schoolmaster. This is the idea of, of someone that uh, back in that time they would have a, a slave that would take a kid to school, to him from school. He was there to protect him. Sometimes he might be harsh. Other times it, it was more gentle. It's not just a one-size-fits-all here. But this, this slave would watch over the kid, guarding the kid. And Paul's drawing on that imagery here, saying, you know, as a little kid, you don't have a lot of freedom. The slave... The slave's watching out for you. It's telling you where to go. It's, it's telling you, hey, get in line. Hey, get to school. Hey, stay over here. I'll, I'll take care of you, right? This is, that, this is the idea Paul's drawing on. The law was that for us until Christ came so that we might find something new and better, so that we might be justified, made right with God by faith. But now something different has come. Faith has come. Knowing God, trusting Him, relying on Him, being in real relationship with Him. Now that has come. So we don't need the disciplinarian to walk behind us with his rod and say, Hey, get back in line. Hey, get to school. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. Man, we use this language as if it's not really true. You are all children of God. Through faith. The next verse says, For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourself with Christ. And you remember we started this series talking about how th this idea that's a mystery, it's hard to comprehend. 
it's a true thing. It's reality. We are united with Christ. We are really related to God in a new way. Through faith and through baptism, we are clothed with Christ. We are God's children now. And this leads us then, if we skip forward to chapter 4 that Josh read for us earlier. My point is this. Sometimes it would be helpful if a preacher would tell you what his point is. I know you guys feel that about me sometimes. Well, here Paul tells us what his point is. My point is this. Heirs, those who inherit, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves. Because the slave's driving them around. The slave's telling them where they got to go. The slave's watching out for them. Though they're, in, in reality, they're owners of all the property. But that's not the way they're living. Because the, the slave's taking care of them. But they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. When they no longer have to have that guardian. So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. There's a tricky phrase there. I'm not going to take time to get into it. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. See, there was a time set for us. There was a time set for the world for things to change. Where we weren't going to need that kind of disciplinarian, that kind of guardian anymore. Because we were going to really be children. Mature children, adult children, those who could receive the inheritance. And when that time came, God sent his son to do something that could not be done otherwise, that no one had ever been able to do. He changed everything so that we could be adopted as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. If you remember last week, we talked about the same ideas in Romans chapter 8. Paul's talking about transformation by being in touch with the spirit of God. And he gets, gets around to saying, hey, the spirit has come into your heart whereby you can cry out to God, Abba, Father. Abba is this, this term that's something like daddy. And I'm uncomfortable even talking about this in some ways because it seems so uh, incredible, so, so beyond us that, that this would actually be what we're invited to do, to, to cry out to God, Dad. <laughs> that's a different kind of a relationship than anybody on earth has ever had with any deity whatsoever. And that the one true God who has created everything comes to us and says, I'm changing things so that you can by faith know me. And when you know me, when you know my heart, the Spirit comes in there and says, you don't just think of me anymore as this di distant deity way out there. You don't just think of me as the lawgiver. You don't just think of me as the judge. You think of me not just as the term father. You think of me as Abba Father. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit lets us know God like that. And you see, freedom's found in that. Freedom is not found by a bunch of abstract doctrines. It's not found by getting looser in our interpretations. Freedom's not found in saying, well, I'm a little bit less concerned about some of the rules that I used to be concerned about, although we may be because of this. Freedom is found in knowing God. 
and relating to him as a loving father. And this starts to free us to live in a different way. This is, this is Christian ethics. Paul, we're going to talk about freedom here in just a second. Paul's not talking about freedom from all morality. In fact, he, he's very, very clear in opposing that kind of thing. He's not just talking about freedom like we do in our society, the freedom of self-expression. He's talking about the freedom we find to truly live as we relate to God as our Father. This is the Christian ethics. This is Christian life. I told you a few weeks ago uh, when we were talking about related ideas that I don't want my children to relate to me primarily on the basis of fear. I don't think that's healthy and good. If my children relate to me primarily on the basis of fear, and especially as they mature and grow older, what I want is a relationship with children who know me and love me, whom I can trust because of uh, where their hearts are. That's what I want. But when children are younger, the, the younger our children are, the more instruction they need, the more detailed regulation they need, the more they need a disciplinarian or a guardian around them. Just this morning, Olivia's telling uh, Eden about how she should be cutting an apple, you know, don't hold it up by your face. Cut it in a certain way. Uh, we have to do things with our kids. We have to remind them of things. Now, we have to say, brush your teeth, clean your room, mind your manners. Those kinds of things we do because our kids are at a place where they're learning. But the goal of our life with our children is not for them to always clean their room and mind their manners and brush their teeth. <laughs> As if that was the best thing they could ever possibly do, right? When we teach our kids to say thank you to people, our goal is not that they learn how to robotically respond by saying thank you when people do something nice. Our goal is that they learn to have grateful hearts. And saying thank you can be one means towards recognizing uh, that we should have a sense of appreciation in a certain moment. But now imagine that our kids grew up and somehow they got the idea that the best way they could really relate to me and Olivia is by making sure they brush their teeth and clean their room and cut apples in the right way. And they were always saying, hey dad, did you, do you know I cleaned my room? Yeah, I did it. Aren't you, aren't you okay with it? Are, are, you, are you happy? See how off that would be? For that matter, even if they were doing things that are, are more important and better, like being nice to people. If they were always doing that and looking over like, Dad, are you okay with me now? Is, is, are, you, are you good now? Something would be off in our, it wouldn't be healthy, it wouldn't be mature. Because the goal is to eventually have children who grow up and have hearts that are free to love and to do good and to love their parents. To enter into a world of freedom, an ethical responsibility that comes without constant checking in, constant regulation, constant instruction. But the danger is that when we start out, most people do need some instruction when they start out. When we tell people, okay, here's, here's what God wants, you know, here's the, here's the way to behave. The danger is they'll start to think that is the essence of the relationship. Some things more important than other things. But whatever it is, they'll start to, oh yeah, that's it. Making sure I do that and say that and don't do that and, and, and don't say that. This is how things work with God. And I'm always checking in, okay God, I did that. Okay God, I went to church. Check. 
right? That's not what God wants for his people. God wants a relationship built on trust. He wants us to enter into freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the freedom of a renewed heart. This is the freedom to act in line with things that are good for others and good for yourself. And the law can glimpse this, but the law can't actually enter it. The law can't actually be your gateway into it. This comes from the Spirit of God. Where we say, yes, we're free. We're not constantly watching to see if we're getting it right. But we're free to serve people. We're free in the body of Christ to say, I will, I will bow before others. I will love others in a way that honors them above myself. I will learn what it really means to love my neighbor as myself. That's entering into freedom. When you teach somebody to play the piano at first, like I'm qualified to talk about this, but uh, some of you could. At first they're learning, you know, I've got to put my fingers here and get them exactly at the right spot. I've got to press this one down and press this one down. And this is how the song is made. Eventually what you want is somebody to get to where they're not thinking all about that, right? They're just playing. This is what God wants for us. He wants us to enter into freedom. And there will be moral virtue in that. There will not be a kind of what people get concerned about. You preach against legalism. Well, you're telling people they can do whatever they want to do. Absolutely not. We're telling people to learn to do the things God wants so that they become what you want. So that your heart comes alive. And you're doing these things from a different place. When I was a kid, I tried to steal a package of Hubba Bubba gum, gum from Piggly Wiggly. And my dad caught me. And I believe I got a whipping. <laughs> And, you know, I don't know that I've ever stolen anything again. But do you know that, just stopping me from stealing, that's a good thing. But that's not where we really want people to go in life. We want people to go to a heart that would never want to steal. Because their heart is turned outward towards others in giving. And you can punish stealing out of a child. But I don't know if it's possible to punish a generous heart into a child. How are you going to do that? Well, let me tell you something. The Spirit of God can put a generous heart into a child. And give them great joy in giving. So that then they, they work with God in the world to bless people. And they see the poor and their heart is moved. And they say, I want to help. And it's not because they're afraid of the whipping. It's because they've come to know God their Father. 
See, we all know that's really what we want. Imagine that uh, somebody's sick in the hospital, your friend, N.T. Wright uses an illustration like this in his Virtue book. Uh, imagine that you go to visit that person. I may, have, I may have actually used this illustration with you before. I've preached a lot of times here, guys. I don't remember. Uh, but uh, you go visit that person in the hospital, and they say, thank you so much for coming. It's just, it means a lot to me that you came. And you, and you say to them, well, honestly, I had to come. I felt like it was my duty. And at first they think you're joking. Like, oh, that's funny. Uh, no, really, thank, thank you so much for coming. Um, no, uh, I really had to. I felt like, I felt like it would be wrong if I didn't. And it was just my obligation. I, I needed to. You know, after a while, what's your friend going to feel? You're like, man, I, thanks, I guess. I, I don't really want you to come if you just feel like you have to come. See, we all recognize there's something not so great about that. Just doing your duty might be okay, might be better than, the, than not doing your duty, but it's not flourishing human life. It's not what we all really want. It's not, not what we all recognize as true goodness. What we recognize as true goodness is when our hearts are turned towards people, turned towards God, first of all, and turned towards the people he loves, and then we want to do the things that he wants for them. We have become, like Wesley said, lovers of all, because God is a lover of all. And so we act from that place. You see what I'm saying? It's a different kind of ethics. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, for righteous people, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Now let me ask you this. Who needs a law that says, don't hit your father or mother? Who needs that law? Somebody who wants to hit their father and mother, right? That's who needs that law. The law is given for those people, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Who needs a law against murder? Somebody who wants to murder. Who needs a law against sexual immorality? Somebody who wants to commit sexual immorality. Right? And... and, and Hey, it's good as far as it goes. I'm glad we have laws in our nation against those things, against where we do have the laws, like against murder. I'm glad that we do. But it's not true righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus talked about. The true righteousness takes us to a place where we don't need those laws because we're not the people who want to do those kind of things. Our hearts have been transformed. The law is good for getting us started, but it just won't take us all the way. The law restrains, but it does not restore. It reveals, but it does not renew. It leaves us asking questions about where can I stop? Mm-hmm. You know, when Jesus was talking, right before he told the good parable of the Good Samaritan, they talked about the greatest command being love God and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what's the question the scribe asked him right after that? 
Who is my neighbor? You know what that kind of question is? Where can I draw the line? Where can I set the limits? Where can I stop loving? <laughs> that was the question. And Jesus, the brilliant parable he gives, just kind of blows the whole question up. And says, you need to think about yourself. You need to think about others in a totally different way. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Convicting the people to start loving in a different kind of way. The law leads us to ask you, where can I draw the lines? How can I keep in the, in the box here doing my duty? But the love of God, knowing God coming into our heart, takes us beyond that. And we stop asking, where can I draw the lines? And we start saying, Lord, what do you want? How can I serve you? How can I be with you? We talked last week about the scriptures that indicate we're supposed to use discernment. We don't have detailed laws for everything we're supposed to do. We're called to discernment. We're called to pray. Because not every situation is made clear for us. We're called, we're called to ask God what he wants for us to do in various situations. And we live in freedom like this. Imagine, you ever seen a movie or something, hopefully you've never actually been on a plane where this happens, but maybe you've seen a movie where something happens to the pilot, he has a heart attack or something on a, on a plane, and uh, somebody has to land that plane who doesn't know how to fly. And so they call in to headquarters, and uh, they start giving them detailed instructions. They're like, push this button here, raise this lever here. And the person very anxiously is pushing buttons and moving levers and all that. And they're trying to get the plane landed successfully, and, and hopefully they do, and it's a great thing. And everybody says, oh, that's great, you know. This kind of ability to, to follow the instructions and get the plane landed, that's great. But how many people want to book a flight with a guy? Who's going to have to do that? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. No, we don't. We want to fly with somebody who knows how to fly. <laughs> we want to fly in the air with somebody who, who doesn't have to think about it when they're pushing this button and moving that letter, lever because they just know what they're doing. Because they have learned it. It's inside them. It's a part of them. Let me say to you that God wants to make people who know how to fly. He wants to make people who aren't always looking around anxiously, trying to figure out which buttons to push. But people who have been inhabited by the Holy Spirit, whose hearts have the law of God now written on their heart, and they know how to live. And they enjoy God. And they enjoy themselves, and they're virtuous and happy. And they're lovers of all. And they go out and they live. And they live a life of obedience. Unless we're entering this kind of freedom, this kind of relationship with God, then uh, our obedience is inevitably going to be forced and we're going to misunderstand the things that are most important. And we're going to start, to think, even if we think some things are good, we're going to start to misplace our values. And we're going to raise the law up and put it more in the center and move Jesus to the side, more to the periphery. I want to just read something to you. I don't, I don't know if I've ever done this before, but it's something I wrote that I'm going to read to you. And uh, I came across it in a document. I actually sent this in an email to a guy who's trying to teach discipleship in a legalistic context. And I thought, well, I'm just going to read this. Here's the challenge for those of us teaching discipleship, especially when teaching it to people from a legalistic background. How do we get people to accept this life as a gift and not a burden? Since many people have never learned to love God, 
and rejoice in his great mercy and acceptance. A call to discipleship, which we often do here. It can feel like a burden upon burden rather than grace upon grace. As long as people are trying to make an exchange with God to get out of trouble and to get into heaven, the price will need to be lower. It's much easier to exchange Sunday mornings and a few bad habits than to die to ourselves, as Jesus calls us to. So I think the overall vision of life in the kingdom has to change for discipleship to become real. And then I've added this part here. I don't think I said this to the guy at the time, but if in some sense we intend to pay for our salvation, whether you think of that as a strong legalist, maybe more soft legalist, if we we intend to pay for our salvation in some sense, we're going to need to lower the price. (laughs) And then we become focused, see, on the things that we... that. are really sideline issues because we can't we know ourselves we know that we're not all that we should be and we don't have a sense of God's love and acceptance so we lower that price and we focus on oh yeah I do church right oh yeah I don't drink or I don't smoke you know name the list of things oh yeah I have the right view of hair length have the right view of clothing all these kind of things that we focus on we're lowering the price (laughs) Because we're not starting from the right place. We're not starting from this place of God's love and acceptance and then entering into a life where we say, hey, I want to I live by dying to myself. I want to grow in Christ through the real avenue of growth. When religion centers on this, do this, don't do that, we make those kind of secondary things primary. And I want to say to you, when we do that, we're actually playing with fire for our own selves. What the legalist will do, I know because I used to do it, what the legalist will do is they'll try to convince you it's dangerous not to make rules about all kinds of secondary things. Oh boy, you mean to take the safe way? Don't make rules about those things. I want to say to you, it's precisely the opposite. It is dangerous when we start making rules about these secondary things. We start making them more important than they really are because when we do that, we're in danger of making our faith more about, making our religion, making our Christianity more about the do's of the law than about the faith and the trust in Christ. And when we do that, we open the door for the flesh to dominate us. That's what we talked about last week very briefly. We haven't had time to get in Colossians 2, but it would really repay further studies. Colossians 2, Paul talks about the, the people who focus on do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all these things. And he says they're of no value ultimately against fleshly indulgence. They don't help you really get to the heart of God. They don't help you in, in having the heart of God being written upon the, on, on our own hearts. Aren't you tired of hearing about Christian leaders who fall? people who are supposed to represent Christ to the world and suddenly they're doing some terrible stuff or just regularly stuff that sometimes is accepted gossiping, maligning others, attacking and abusing others. These things are are known to happen among people who are supposed to be Christian leaders and I'll tell you what it is it is the heart of the flesh it's not the Holy Spirit working in people and it is where the law will often take us It's of no value against those deep-seated things in our hearts, those things that lead us into into immorality. The law doesn't help us get out of that. What we need is the Spirit of God. What we need is life from above. 
We've been talking about supernatural life. I want to say to you that it's really possible. It's really possible. But it's not possible by getting the rules and regulations in front of us and focusing our life on those. It's possible by getting in touch with the Lord Jesus through faith. And that's where supernatural life is possible. So if I close, as I close, I want to share with you a, a, a word from C.S. Lewis. I think all Christians would agree with me if I said that though Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on out of all that into something beyond. One has a glimpse of a country where they do not talk of those things except perhaps as a joke. Everyone there is filled full with what we should call goodness as a mirror is filled with light. But they do not call it goodness. They do not call it anything. They are not thinking of it. They are too busy looking at the source from which it comes. Now I want to just, I want to close what I've been doing with you this summer. I want to close right here. Because that's what I've been saying to you. It's getting in touch with that source of goodness the person who is the source of goodness, that is where supernatural life is. And that is what will lead into genuine obedience. The kind of obedience that God has always wanted. Not the kind that says, I'll keep the rules and do everything just right and look down on others as I do so. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a heart that's transformed, a heart like my grandmother had, of humility and sacrificial love and deep trust. It's looking at that source. It's a resting faith. Resting in the love and goodness of God accepting his mercy, talking about him, being preoccupied with that God who has saved us and remade us and renamed us and reclaimed us and said, now go and represent me, be an image bearer of Christ in the world. That God focused on him. Aren't you ready to look in to the something beyond? And this is what heaven's going to be, guys. But I believe heaven is meant to begin on this earth. Because the Spirit of God has come present and brought the life of heaven into people. And what we want to aim for, what we want to believe in, is this world where people in Christ are already being filled with goodness, like a mirror is filled with light. But my dear brothers and sisters, please know that just trying harder just getting some rules clearer in your head and trying to keep them. It will never take you to something like that. But right now, you see, right now you can enter it by faith. Right now you can say, Lord, this is the life I want. I want to enjoy you and myself. I want to learn the life that is truly life with Jesus. And it's, it's truly possible, guys. Would you enter it today? Would you receive it by faith? It's offered to all of us. Thank God for that. Would you stand up with me and let's, let's close in song.